Hot, hot, don't touch, my mother warned. Four years old, hypnotized by the mysterious flicker on the kitchen stove, I ignored her. Fire quickly seared both its appeal and its danger into my psyche. Years later, my father allowed me to add a stick to the fire in the fieldstone fireplace in our old farmhouse. His gesture of trust marked a step in my progress towards full membership in my community. Later still, after I had helped him rake autumn leaves into a pile beside the dirt road, he rewarded me with another milestone in the transition to adulthood. Yes, I could strike the match to set the leaves ablaze. We had no sense of carbon footprint back then. Burning leaves was standard practice. Though it took a few fumbling tries before I got it right, I took great pride in the accomplishment. Standing guard afterwards, ready with my child-sized rake, lest the fire try to escape the bounds we human masters had set for it, savoring the complex, spicy aroma of burning maple and catalpa leaves, I inwardly glowed with the awareness of having, having been entrusted with one of the keys to the kingdom. The chain of one generation passing knowledge about and responsibility for fire goes back long before we existed as a species. Scholars differ about which of our hominin predecessors first domesticated fire, whether Homo erectus deserves the honor or some even earlier ancestor. While we domesticated fire, fire, meanwhile, domesticated us. Keeping the fire alive meant keeping our little band alive, so we learned cooperative behavior. Someone must tend the fire while others collect fuel. Rituals that taught and enforced behaviors about keeping the fire going led to other forms of cooperation. We have probably performed fire rituals longer than we have used language. The many fire ceremonies we perform at UUCB derive from ancient practice. Over our altar hangs an eternal light, a direct descendant of the Nertamid, the prophet Moses taught the wandering Israelites to burn constantly before the Holy of Holies in the original tabernacle. Grace Holt tells me that in our early days in this building, the light was an actual oil lamp. A group called the Women's Alliance regularly lowered it to replenish its fuel. By the way, below this ancient Judeo-Christian symbol hangs what appears to be a brass statuette reminiscent of ancient pagan goddess worship. Grace professes no knowledge of how that got there. Hmm... Since a fire can burn far longer than a human lifetime, well-tended flames often serve to link a culture's past, present, and future. The Zoroastrians, who believe that fire is an earthly manifestation of the supreme god Ahura Mazda, have carefully tended sacred fires for millennia. In the last century, the advent of natural gas and electricity made eternal flames and lights easier to keep going. They have pr proliferated around the world, Alas, aside perhaps for some natural long-burning fires, a mountain in Australia has burned for some 10,000 years, what we naively call eternal flames are not destined to really truly burn eternally. If any of our recently lit flames last as long as those tended by the Vestal Virgins of Rome, they will still burn in the 32nd century. The way we currently manage our world before the 22nd century, many of the places where eternal flames now burn are likely to be underwater.
<clears throat> Another type of community fire ritual celebrates the turning of the seasons and other annual events. In our beloved Christmas Eve tradition, each person adds a candle to a magnificent glowing manifestation of the light and warmth of our shared community. Celebratory fires marking the passage of time were common in many pagan traditions throughout Europe and became incorporated, incorporated into such Christian traditions as the feast of St. John, John the Baptist on the summer solstice when young couples leapt over bonfires to encourage fertility. One theory of how Christmas came to be celebrated on December 25th is that this was the date of the Roman festival Dies Natales Solis Invicti, the birthday of the unconquerable sun. Some cyclical fires served as rites of renewal. By burning up the broken and decayed, room was made for new forms, new thoughts, and new worlds. A related type of ritual celebrates historical events or rites of passage in a person's life. Jewish members of our congregation place a menorah on our altar during the festival of Hanukkah and light one of eight candles each night until all are burning. On the screen is last year's menorah reflected in the lid of a piano. The festival commemorates the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. In another echo of ancient practice, we make tea lights available on the table of holding our memory book. In our non-specific UU way, what the act of lighting a flame there means or commemorates is up to each, each person making the gesture. The form of the gesture, though, recalls ceremonies of remembrance, such as personal fire ceremonies in Jewish, Hindu, and other traditions that bring to mind loved ones on the anniversaries of their deaths. More distantly, it echoes rituals in which the fire served to communicate with divinities. Through the smoke it sends aloft, one may ask questions, do penance, attempt to appease, or send appeals. The gesture also echoes rituals of purification and protection, in which something troubling or threatening gets burned up in the fire, symbolically purging away the unwanted to create a stronger and purer self. The beautiful creations of our altar guild usually include large ceremonial candles. Guild member Jean Hyam suggests that for the worship associates who usually light them, doing so could serve as a ritual of transition into the sacred time of the service and as a moment to remind oneself to be present. Some fire rituals persist for millennia. The complex Vedic Agnikayana, which takes place over days and features a giant brick altar shaped like a bird of prey, has been performed in parts of India for over 4,000 years. Originally, it marked a declaration of ownership. Each time the Indo-Iranian people moved further east into the Gangetic Plain, they performed a ritual declaring, this land is now ours. That's one type of ritual we don't perform much here at UUCB. Of more recent vintage is the lighting and extinguishing of our UU chalice, a practice developed in recent decades as a way of, to mark time together in worship and meetings. It exemplifies a broad class of rituals sanctifying a particular time and space. We've heard often about the history of the chalice, so I won't dwell on it. Something about lighting a fire signifies, now we choose actions with serious intent. I was actually a bit surprised once I started looking by just how many different ways we use ceremonial fire at UUCB. 
I promised, however, more than a catalog of ceremonies. I promised to speculate a bit about what makes fire such a versatile symbol and tool for creating ritual. Here goes. Philosophers, naturalists, alchemists, and scientists long struggled to answer a basic question. What is fire, actually? Is it one of four or five elements composing the universe? Or is it the one universal element out of which all else was born? It seemed obvious for a long time that burnable things contained some kind of fire substance which escaped when they burned. The story earlier was put there by a frog. Um, Sometimes, staring into our fires, we have seen a god, even the god. Those who witnessed heavenly fire strike the earth as lightning came to what seemed obvious conclusions about fire gods in the sky. The Vedic god of fire, Agni, derives from an ancient Indo-European deity whose name lives on in English in such words as ignite, igneous, and ignition. When not a god itself, fire could still make manifest the divine presence and the divine will. The god of the Israelites spoke to Moses through a burning bush and led his people through the wilderness with nightly calms of fire. In ancient Greece, after an annual festival at a temple of Dionysus, the god made a great fire shoot forth if he intended to produce a good growing season. If no fire appeared, people prepared for the worst. My own first memory of pondering the question, what is fire, places me sitting around a campfire with Boy Scout Troop 43. At that age, I devoted much of my leisure time to tales of intrepid space travelers, who boldly leaped through mysterious time warps and encountered strange creatures on alien worlds. What if, my 14-year-old imagination speculated, fire is actually an alien life form? Think of it. Fires are born, take in food, grow, give off heat, move about when they can, then eventually die, just like living creatures. I can't remember what my fellow scouts thought of my idea. I thought it brilliant. That fire might be alive in some sense is not, of course, a new idea. The Roman essayist Plutarch, writing in the first century of the Common Era, observed that nothing bears such a resemblance to an animal as fire. Fire moves and feeds itself, he noted, can die either by force quenching or natural decay, and when quenched, quote, makes a noise and resists like a dying animal, unquote. From the animist perspective, perhaps the oldest human conception of how the world works, everything is alive. The only exceptional thing about fire is how obviously it makes its living status apparent compared to the other more subtler life of wind, say, or rocks. From a scientific perspective, life does share a strange sort of kinship with fire. Most living creatures get energy from cellular respiration, At the core of respiration, a set of processes that releases biochemical energy from nutrients, is a a combustion reaction. This form of combustion is a much older sibling of the rapid, harder-to-control form of combustion known as fire. Of the four traditional elements, fire is by far the youngest. Earth, air, and water existed for four billion years before the fire of combustion even became possible. Though we may speak of the sun as burning and of fiery volcanoes, the thermonuclear process that powers the sun and the gravitational forces that create volcanoes are very different 
from the combustion process of earthly fire. Before us, here I speak very broadly, meaning all by us, all carbon-based life forms, there was no fire. Why not? There was nothing to burn. It took us living things a billion years to create the conditions necessary for our younger sibling fire to be born. We had to somehow emerge in the seas, find foothold on dry land, and die in sufficient quantities to create fuel. We also had to produce enough oxygen. The atmosphere, which originally contained next to no oxygen, had to obtain 13% before the first smoldering fires could, ac- could occur. How did that happen? We did it. Again, speaking broadly of us living things. Once our little cellular combustions are all spent, we leave the cell walls behind, huge quantities of them, as it turns out, ready for our hot-headed sibling fire to consume. Fire is the energy of life, concentrated and unleashed. The tepid juice of our slow internal smolder squeezed from its watery casement distilled into blazing high-proof fire shine. Though fire never appears on any chart of the family tree of life, it lurks there, a non-living relative. So that is the first part of my explanation of our endless fascination with fire, a vague sense of primal kinship and awareness that fire is the life force distilled. The second part is our sense, conscious or not, of how dependent we are on this, our first technology, and how thoroughly our interaction with it has shaped our civilization, our environment, for good, or as increasingly we are aware, for ill, and even our bodies. People have always wondered how it came to be that we humans, alone of all the animals, learned to control fire. Every culture has at least one myth. We heard several earlier. However, we managed the trick of controlling fire. It enabled us to come down from African trees and live wherever we chose. Wielding fire, we could chase predators out of caves. We think of cavemen as primitive, but in their day, resting control of such useful shelters as caves was an achievement, accomplished through mastery of our first technology. Control of fire enabled us to lose most of our body hair, shrink our gut, spend less time chewing uncooked food and more time exercising our expanding brains. Without the creative and destructive power of fire, we would be the helpless, shivering animals in Plato's version of the Prometheus myth, last in line when the gods handed out the necessities for survival. I also promised to mention Burning Man, another relatively new location of fire ritual. Not all the fires at Burning Man are ritual fires. Many Burmers perform with fire just for the fun of playing with one of the things their mothers taught them never to play with. It's like a giant sandbox out there, and one of the things people play with is crazy costumes. And thanks for Gail and David for uh, for giving us an example. We imagine 50,000 people dressed like that. That's Burning Man. And learning to twirl sticks with fire on each Uh, each end or dance with candelabras balanced on your head takes discipline and concentration, the stakes heightened by the knowledge that a mistake can seriously harm you. Right now, in a dry lake bed in Nevada, artists of many levels of ambition have begun building elaborate sculptures designed to burn. Two years ago, I went to Burning Man specifically to ask why. 
Why put so much effort into making something beautiful only to set it to the torch? The answers I heard ranged from the practical to the mystical. Thinking temporary art can free the imagination was one answer. If artists had to plan for what to do with their creations after the festival concluded, take it all apart, cart it away, and find some place to store it, far fewer works would get built. The festival culminates in two great rituals. First comes the Dionysian burning of the great eponymous effigy, surrounded by tens of thousands of cheering up celebrants. Next one, Stephanie, there we go. And bizarre vehicles blaring cacophonous music. The man goes up in a blaze of fireworks. The next night, much of the same multitude watches in solemn silence as an intricate, lovingly constructed wooden temple laden with personal mementos, burns in ritual mourning for friends and family lost during the previous year. Some of the mementos people attach to the temple come with explanations. A picture of an older man with a long letter from his daughter examining the twists and turns of their relationship. A picture of a dog with a note on lined paper in a child's hand. I wish I had played with you more. (laughs) That one always gets me. (laughs) Others speak eloquently, if ambiguously, without benefit of text. Someone's wedding dress. One of the artists who spends a month each year building the temple, who gave her name as Gravity, answered my question by saying, some things are too sacred to keep. When we burn them, they go from physical to ephemeral. Larry Harvey, founder of the festival, said, we take people to the threshold of religion. Our aim is to induce immediate experience that is beyond the odd, beyond the strange, and beyond the weird. It verges on the holy other. Watching an elaborate structure burn, freed from having to feel sympathy for anyone who lived or worked in it, since no one ever did, or who might be suffering financial loss as their real estate investment went up in flames, free to view spectacular fire as a purely aesthetic experience, well, a well-designed burn can be gorgeous, enthralling, and yes, verging on something other. The Burning Man Festival, in a dry lake bed that most of the year is just dust or mud, is a microcosm of the ephemeral nature of life. All human creations are temporary, after all. The art we diligently try to protect in museums for a few brief centuries will someday go the way of the treasures lost in the Dresden firestorms, the National Museum of Rio de Janeiro, and the great Buddhas of Bamyan. The deliberately temporary art that burns in Black Rock City is just more temporary than most. Watching fire is like time-lapse photography in reverse. Each log we put on the fire represents 10, 50, or hundreds of years of the diligent, concentrated effort of a living tree. We watch it spool backward into dust in half an hour. As Bachelard put it, fire suggests a desire to change to speed up the passage of time, to bring all of life to its conclusion. It links the life of a log to the life of a world. One can hear in this, as he did, the call of the funeral pyre, or we can hear the classic lesson to appreciate the brief time between when we flicker into existence and when we flicker out. As a Swahili word in a favorite hymn we will sing a little later puts it, abatiwa. O fortunate existence.
We come from the fire, live in the fire, go back to the fire. Woe, such is life. Thank you.